of you may know, I hiked the Grand Canyon once. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. Uh, I, I did the short version, which is south rim to the river, across the river, and back up. It's only 17 and a half miles. But if you go to the north rim and you do rim to rim, you get the fullness of the canyon. And it's somewhere around, I think, 25 miles, something like that. And uh, a group of friends just recently hiked that, rim to rim, and I can't imagine how they're feeling right now, because it's 10 more miles than I did, and I felt terrible when I came out of it. They say the Grand Canyon is so vast, and it's so deep, that a certain New York City skyscraper can be stacked on top of itself three times to equal the depth of, of the Grand Canyon. Can you guess which skyscraper it is that I'm referring to? The, everybody says it, the Empire State Building. Now, there are many other buildings in New York City, many other buildings across the world that you could use as a metric. A new diagram shows the world's tallest buildings as of July 2011, so it's a little dated, and the side-by-side -side of the Empire State Building with a building called the Burj Khalifa Building in Dubai. And when you look at that comparison, the Burj Khalifa Building dwarfs the Empire State Building. When you put them side by side. But yet, when we describe the depth of the Grand Canyon, we still refer to the Empire State Building. While the Empire State Building is 450 meters high, the Burj Khalifa towers over it at 828 meters. Of course, we will continue to use the Empire State Building to describe the depth of the Grand Canyon because saying it's as deep as 1.5 Burj Khalifas just doesn't have the same effect. We would rather stack three Empire State Buildings on top of each other. If you Google the Burj Khalifa, you will find endless pictures and diagrams that all share one small but same detail. And that is a side-by-side -side comparison to the Empire State Building. You see, in order for people to grasp its true grandeur, it must be compared to another of its kind. It must be stacked up against others of its kind. Now this is acceptable and expected in the world of architecture and engineering. But is it acceptable among Christ's followers? Is it acceptable to play the comparison game and to think of ourselves as smaller or greater than others in the kingdom of God? That's the question today as we open up Romans chapter 13. So if you have a Bible open there to Romans, sorry, 14. Romans 14. We're going to look at just verses 1 through 4, so follow along in your copy of the scriptures with me. Paul writes to the church. Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. 
Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Our sinful condition, our sinful nature, the old self, often manifests the need to be accepted above other people, doesn't it? Our old self wants to be justified by its own works. And it glories often in its own nature. In its own stature. But this attitude of the flesh is set against the gospel of Christ. Because the gospel places everyone on the same level playing field. We are all at the foot of the cross. None of us stands higher than another. All who receive Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith are fully justified by His work on the cross. We know this from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, right? For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works that He has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Each believer's faith is valuable not because of the believer, but the believed. That is, Jesus is the object of our faith and therefore our faith, whether it's weak or strong, at any point in time in our walk, our faith is solid. You need to hear that today. Jesus even says... That the smallest amount of faith, and he gives the illustration of a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that his audience would have used in their garden. Even that amount of faith can do what? Move mountains. Was he referring to the, to the believer or to the believed? He was talking about the believed himself, the gospel the truth of God, the revealed nature of God, even the small amount of faith, of faith, if it's placed in that which is true, that is faith that we should praise God for. Amen? So there are going to be times in your Christian walk where you feel like your faith is very small. When you disappoint yourself and you think you've disappointed God and maybe you've disappointed others around you, But the gospel says that it's not the strength of your faith. It's just that you have faith in Christ. He makes all the difference. And so we're all on equal footing at the foot of the cross. In verse 1, it's interesting, isn't it? He says, Except the one who is weak in faith. 
But, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Church people have earned a bad reputation over the years, haven't we? Let's just own up to it. We have, for better or for worse. People have been known to say that we sometimes shoot our wounded. At least in this passage, it is evident that even in the early church, from the first century AD, even up to today, Christians have destroyed their own brothers and sisters because of weakness. Because of weak faith. They played the comparison game. And the weak were the losers. The weak were the Empire State Building and all those diagrams measured up to a much larger building. We find that the weak in Romans 14 were people of conviction. They were people who believed things very strongly. And those that were strong looked upon them as if their beliefs were silly. Now you shouldn't believe that. That shouldn't be a problem for you. You're weak in faith. That's sad. You, you should be stronger. Now maybe those convictions of the weak were considered ridiculous by others, but they were in fact convictions of their faith. And Paul says, accept ones who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of playing the comparison game. There is an attractiveness to our flesh to want to do that. I heard someone say one, one time, this was somebody I had just met who found out I was a, a pastor and a church planter. And um, how, we were talking about our churches and I said, yeah, we just, you know, we just appointed two new elders. And this, this pastor asked me, well, can they preach? And I said, oh yeah, they can preach. They preach often. We love it when they do preach. And said, oh, I was like, what, is that a bad thing? Oh yeah, you don't, you don't, you know what they say, you don't want, uh, you don't want anybody in your church preaching better than you do. Like, why not? I said, I, I, I do want that, yes. And what he meant was, is that your church will like your preaching and will like you more as a lead pastor if everybody else that you, that you put in front of them, that you invite to preach is, is terrible or worse than you. It will make you look better and feel better and they'll like you more because of the what? The comparison game. I said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in the body of Christ. One of the most. I've heard a lot. But that's crazy. Paul says there is, a, there is an attractiveness to the human flesh to say to other believers, yeah, come alongside of me. Yeah, come alongside of us. We will accept you for the purpose of playing the comparison game and pointing out their weaknesses and sticking out our chest and saying, man, I feel really good about who I am. The Bible says to accept the weak in verse 1 but not for the purpose of passing judgment. That is, not for the purpose of comparison to your own faith. I think that Paul senses the urge of believers to justify themselves by comparison to others. 
Turning your Bibles over to Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, this is a story I shared not too long ago with you. A parable Jesus tells, a story Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. In Luke 18, starting in verse 9, Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Can I just add a parenthetical there? He was unwilling to lift his eyes even up to heaven. I think the intention there is Jesus is saying much less looking at someone else to his right or to his left. But he says he was beating his chest saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. The Pharisee says in his prayer, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. The comparison game. I'm sure he loved being at the temple in the company of this tax gatherer. Welcome to the temple, tax gatherer. You are going to help me in my prayer. Because now I can go to the Lord and I can thank Him with you in full view. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like Him. I'm twice as tall as the Empire State Building. But Jesus uses this word justification. Who is justified? Who is justified before a holy and righteous God? We're not justified because of our strength or anything like that in comparison to another person, another human being. That's not how we're justified. We are justified by the person and work of Christ. That's the only way we can be justified. And so Paul says, don't accept weaker brothers and sisters for the purpose of passing judgment on them. Because once you do that, you place yourself in danger. You reveal that something's not right with your heart. That you're thinking about God and you're thinking about Christ and you're thinking about yourself and you're thinking about salvation the wrong way. Once you start to judge others weak in the faith, you've missed the mark when it comes to justification. You don't want to miss the mark. Don't miss the mark. Now this attitude reveals three things I want to share with you this morning. Three things that I believe are flawed in our thinking. Number one, our sense of community. If we do this, if we 
pass judgment on opinions. Not theological, core, biblical principles and doctrines. Paul would have never said this about the Gnostics or the Arians. Those who denied Jesus' divinity or humanity. Or denied the Trinity. He's talking about things that are in the realm of opinion. Things that some believers might struggle with that others don't. He particularly is talking about meat. Your diet. What people eat and how they eat. We discover from the book of Acts when God shows Peter in a dream that, that he is to minister to go out and share the gospel with the Gentiles. That things are only unclean that God has said are unclean. That nothing's unclean in and of itself. And God is telling Peter, take and eat. This is clean. Now go out and minister. We, we discover that Peter still struggles with that as he goes through in his ministry. Because we find in the book of Galatians, we find Paul having to oppose Peter, Paul says, to his face. Because Peter stands condemned. Why? Because Peter, even though Peter with his mouth is saying, the gospel is free, salvation is free, it's not by works that you're saved. When he eats with a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles, when he eats with them, he separates himself from the Gentiles as if they're unclean. And he only eats with the Jewish brothers. Paul says he holds himself aloof. He's not living in a way that is consistent with his own salvation or with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of dietary stuff. Because of eating. When we think this way, it, it shows we have a flawed sense of community. When we parse out the community and we say, well, there are strong ones and there are weak ones, and I want to be with the strong ones only. This is how Christian groups get splintered. This is how churches get divided. I want to be with the strong ones. The ones that are ready for this type of ministry or discipleship or evangelism or whatever. He says in verse 3, Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Listen, for God has what? Accepted him. Remember the story of the prodigal son? There's a son who leaves home. Now this is a, this is a word picture Jesus uses. This is an illustration of the Gentiles. The son who leaves home squanders everything is lost the Gentiles and the Jews, those who remain, that son who remains at home. And the father being God is looking down the road for the son to come to repentance. The lost son comes to repentance. He comes home. The father showers his grace upon the son who is lost. He invites him where? Into the house. Into the community. The lost son said, I'll go home. I'll be, I'll be happy to be one of my father's servants just to live outside of the house. 
Because he even takes care of his servants better than anyone else does. I'm happy just to live there. But the father says, no, you're a part of this community. The end of the story, we find that there's someone else who's not in the home partying with the father and the son who came home. It's the older brother is out in the field. And he's at an arm's distance with the community. Because he's judging the father who accepted the son. And he's judging the son who repented and came home. Paul says here in verse 3. If God has accepted your brother or sister. It doesn't matter how weak or strong their faith is. They stand or they fall with him as their father. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Just a cross-reference to understand a little bit more about the culture and what Paul was dealing with. It wasn't just in Rome. But in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul sends a very strong message to those who feel as though they are strong in the faith because of the knowledge that they have. And he says, starting in verse 1, this is 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore concerning the eating things sacrificed to to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining at an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Now, jumping over to chapter 9, verse 19 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are 
under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. This is, this is Paul's theology. This is the Holy Spirit's message on how to behave and how to live with the weak. Knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Paul says, yeah, we know all these things. We know that there are no idols. I mean, there are no true, true idols. Like, there's, there's only one God who truly exists. We know that when people are idolaters, they're actually worshiping false gods. We know that pantheists are false. We know that Buddhists are false, that Hindus are false. We know that they're worshiping false gods. But new believers who come out of those environments, out of those lifestyles, they are new Christians. And their theology, they're learning these things about God. See, faith begins, your Christian life begins the moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not the moment that you, you gain all the biblical theology in the world. It's a moment of faith and trust in the person and work of Christ. And then you're learning along the way. And folks, we've got to let each other learn. We've got to walk with one another hand in hand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the little ones, the young ones, the adults who are new to the faith. We must do that in grace and in love because they belong to the Father, as do we. We can lose our true sense of community when we judge one another, when we judge the weak of faith. Let us not lose the sense of community that God intends for His church. We also can lose our sense of maturity. What does it mean to grow? What does it mean to mature? We just learned from, from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.19. He has knowledge. If you're going to pick the most mature Christian in the New Testament, I don't know anyone more mature than Paul. Do you? I don't. But he's also the one that says, all the legalistic stuff in my background that some would consider to be a sign of religious maturity. He says in Philippians 3, I count all that stuff as a, as a dung heap, as rubbish compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing value of knowing Jesus as his Lord. He says pales in comparison to all those other things. So we must, we must have a different sense of what it means to be mature as a Christian than the world around us does. What does it mean to be mature? When the world around us says maturity, intelligence is a sign of maturity. Growing in scientific knowledge equals maturity. That's not what the Bible says about Christian maturity. You can grow in knowledge, that's very good, but are you growing in grace? Are you growing in charity toward others? For Paul, maturity meant 
self-restraint and deference to other people. If, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, listen, Paul says, I will never eat meat again. To the weak, I became weak. To the Jew, I became as a Jew. To those who live without the law, I spoke their language. I, I went to the Areopagus in Athens and I spoke to the philosophers. I spoke their language. I learned the way that they, they communicate. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Because God loves them and desires for them to be saved. Our sense of maturity is flawed if we think that the reason God makes us strong, the reason God gives us convictions, the, w- the reason that we grow in our faith is for the purpose of comparing ourselves to other people and demeaning them because of their weaknesses. He says in verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Now, many people will use this text out of context. This sentence, this phrase, this verse. Who are we to judge? Going back to Matthew, I think it's chapter 7. Judge not lest you be judged. What does Jesus mean by that? He certainly does not mean that we do not make judgments. He certainly does not mean that we We turn a blind eye to sin or things that God has clearly spoken about in Scripture. He doesn't mean that. Because he also says to Timothy and Titus, he says, all these things that I'm telling you, that I'm instructing you in in the gospel, prescribe, prescribe, right? Not suggest, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one disregard you. So that is, people cannot ignore the teaching of Scripture and say, well, that's good for you, pastor, that's good for you, elder, that's good for you, teacher or evangelist, but it's not good for me and you can't judge me. That's not what's going on here in Romans 14. There's a saying, how do we interpret Scripture? We let Scripture interpret Scripture. You can't just take verses out of context. So what does he mean here when he says, who are you to judge the servant of another? He explains it. He says, to his own master he stands or falls and stand he will for the Lord is able to make him stand. This is in reference to, if you go back to verse 1, his, what? Opinions. Opinions. We all have opinions. We all have convictions on things that some would say, yeah, those things don't matter. They matter to some people. People are convicted about certain things. But those may not be gospel issues. They may not be gospel issues. It's a matter of conscience, which we're going to get into next week. Finally, we have our sense of community, our sense of maturity, and then finally, our sense of stewardship. Looking at verse 4, the lordship of Christ should lead us to a greater sense of stewardship and not license. Not just doing whatever we want. If we acknowledge the fact, we could be, we could look at verse 4 and say, well here Paul says, you're only accountable to God and nobody else. So that means, live however you want to 
And no one has the right to speak into your life. That would be licentious, wouldn't it? That's not what he intends here. If Christ alone is Lord of the conscience, and we believe that, it should instill in us a conviction of stewardship rather than license. That knowing that Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience, that that means I answer completely and fully to him. That should be a convicting thing for me, not a liberating type of thing. It is liberating, but it's convictional. Often it is misunderstood by Christians and has led to selfishness and license. So, our question this morning. Can we adopt a posture toward the weaker brother or sister that resembles a big brother instead of a bully? You ever experience a bully? Think about bullies. Experience that bully on the playground, maybe when you were a kid, there was a bully in your neighborhood. Why are they bullies? Psychologists have, psychiatrists, whoever have dived into the minds of the human psyche today, and they'll tell you all kinds of reasons why bullies are bullies. Why do they behave the way they are? I, I don't need to read psychological journal to know why bullies bully. I remember when I was in school. I think junior high is probably the time I experienced bullying the most. Moved to a new school when I was in the 8th grade. It was a small school. Everybody knew each other from the time they were little to the time, you know, we were in 8th grade. And I was a new kid. And I remember there there were a couple of kids who just, they were just mad at the world all the time. Just mad at the world all the time. And I never understood why. Until one day, I was talking with one of these guys, and they were just kind of joking around, telling some of the guys in the locker room some things about their father. And it hit me. This is a kid who is insecure about his identity because of the horrible person his father is to him. Some of the stuff he would say to us about the things his father told him. His dad used to tell him, even at a young age, that he was an accident. That he wasn't even supposed to be there. He lived with that his entire life. And no one at home was telling him, you are my beloved son. You matter. You're significant. You can do this. I believe in you. He never heard that stuff. And so what did he have to do at school? He had to act like that building in Dubai. He had to, to get close to other people, rub shoulders with other people and stand tall. He'd push people down. He would berate people verbally. He would cuss people out. He would make people feel really small so that he could feel big because it was the only way he could feel big. Bullies must torment others to feel any sense of worth. Because they, know, they have no intrinsic worth in themselves. 
They must tear others down. They must point out the weaknesses in others. If a low person wants to stand tall among their peers, they have to bring their peers down. That's the essence of bullying. Now this is the difference between bullies and brothers. See, all believers have the same father. All believers have been justified by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And therefore, we all stand at the same level. There is no reason to bully those who are weak in faith. There is no reason to play the comparison game because we all have a Father who loves us. If you compare yourself to other believers, stop it. Just stop. Realize who God is and what He's done in Jesus Christ for you. That's the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He continues to love us. Whether we're weak, whether we're strong in our faith, or anywhere in between. Let us continue to put our faith and our trust in Him.